Let's take our Bibles now and open them to 1 John chapter 2. It's been quite some time since we've been in our lessons in 1 John. And unfortunately, this uh, break that we have had has interrupted a message that I began several weeks ago on verses 12 through 14 in the second chapter. So it's going to take me a few minutes to kind of get back into the flow of this passage, but I do intend to finish this up tonight. Uh, When I first started looking at these verses uh, a few weeks ago, I thought that I would be able to uh, say everything that I wanted to say here in, in one message. But I got through that one message and I said, well, no, that's not quite all that I want to say. So I expanded that to two messages. And then when I got done with two, I said, no, there's still more here that we need to look at. So I got up to three and that didn't work. So now we're up to four, but I am going to finish it tonight. So if you've got uh, 1 John chapter 2, we'll read these verses here and then we'll sort all this out and and finish up uh, these verses this evening. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 12 Uh, John says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. And the subject in these verses is spiritual growth. Now, as most of you know, John has been uh, working on the problem of, of false professors that are in the church. There was a group of people that are called the Gnostics, and they tried to mix Christian principles with Greek philosophy, and they had come up with a perversion of the gospel and of Christian living that simply was just unacceptable to true Christianity. And so 1 John begins with a uh, a refutation of these false teachings, and John explains that there are tests that have to be applied that will indicate where we are in our faith. It will tell us whether we are truly Christians. Those tests are moral, social, and doctrinal. And all three of those areas have to be right for a person to know that he truly is in Christ. In the midst of the explanation of those tests, John becomes aware that there may be some of the Christians that are receiving this letter and hearing what he has to say and may feel that he is attacking them and that he actually has doubts about their salvation. But John's not writing to give them doubt. In fact, what he is writing about is to give them some assurance, and he wants them to realize that as they apply these tests to their faith, this moral, social, and doctrinal test, as those tests are applied to their faith, and that will bring them the assurance that they need. So he pauses here, and he injects a personal note. Now, he doesn't doubt their salvation, but he wants to show them that no matter what stage of their spiritual growth that they're in, they can have assurance of their faith. And John wants to help them find that assurance. So this part of the Christian experience, the growth process, is what we call the doctrine of sanctification. That's where we began in that very first sermon, uh, with the sanctifying work of God. And sanctification is God's work. It begins at the very moment that we're saved. The Bible teaches that we are justified and we are sanctified. And I pointed out that sanctification has two sides to it. The first one is positional. 
And that means that when we're saved, we are sanctified, set apart to God. We become holy before God. And we, we don't actually become any more holy or any more sanctified in that sense in any point of our life any more than we were when we first believed. But then there's another side of the doctrine, and, and this is really where John is going with this. It's the growth process, and we call it progressive sanctification. This is where a Christian matures, that he grows up. It's fruit that's being produced in his life. It's the real evidence that a person is saved. Now, the, the moral, the social, and the doctrinal test grow out of this sanctifying process. So this is what's in view in verses 12 through 14. There's this ongoing, progressive work of God in this sanctifying process, uh, uh, God growing them up, God increasing their knowledge in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this is what John is dealing with here, and he splits out this sanctifying process into three different types of Christians. Now, the second part of the message was speaking about these three different groups, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of the time tonight, and that's the stages of spiritual growth. And this is not a matter of a person's physical age, because when a person gets saved, it doesn't make any difference how old he is physically. He, he's going to enter the Christian life exactly as all people come. He's a newborn believer in Christ. The Bible calls it the new birth. And so there he is, born again in Christ. He's a new disciple. And when he comes in at that stage, he's an immature believer. The simpler uh, parts of the gospel are what he needs to know, the simpler parts of God's Word, because at this point, uh, a new believer is not ready to digest all of the deeper truths of the Word. So these are, according to John, the children. These are the immature and in this passage, John refers to them as little children. The point that he wants to make is that in the beginning of a, of a Christian's life, even when he is in this stage of being a little child, being immature, there is a place, there is a way that he can know that he has assurance of salvation. Now, newborn believers are, are just very excited about uh, everything when they become a Christian. Everything that they hear is new to them, and they become excited about that. And the first consciousness of their faith is that they know that they've been forgiven. I mean, when you, when you hear messages about, about hell and, and what would happen to you if you don't know Christ as Savior, uh, when you hear messages about the consequences of sin, and then to find out that when you have trusted Christ, that you have been forgiven all of your sins, that Christ has taken the penalty of your sins for you, well, that is great grounds for assurance. I mean, when you have that, you, you're happy about that, uh, knowing that, that that penalty of sin has been removed and you're free from condemnation. So John starts with that. He says these, these little children know that their sins have been forgiven. And also in verse 13, he says that little children have known the Father. There is a closeness that they have to the Heavenly Father. When they first get saved, uh, they feel that love and that warmth that they haven't known before. They know that God is there to protect them and to watch over them. They have somebody to hold their hand in the bad times and, and just to give them security. And so this immature believer in Christ, he comes into his faith with just a blind trust in God. Everything that he hears, he drinks in and he believes. And he hasn't yet cultivated greater levels of understanding about things, but he's just simply at this point dependent upon God. He's unpretentious. He trusts what he hears. Well, that would show us that there are pitfalls in that stage because everything you hear is not right. But having that openness, uh, willing to, to believe what you hear and to not question that, that is a good thing if 
you have people that are teaching you the right truths from the Bible, or teaching you the correct things from the Bible. Well, John then goes on next, and he speaks about the maturing. These are in another stage, the next stage of spiritual growth, and they're the young men. And this is where we left off in the last message. Uh, progressive sanctification is that growth process. And while it's good for us to have that wide-eyed trust of a child, yet we don't want to stay in that stage. We want to grow up so that we can tell the difference between truth and error. And a baby that doesn't grow would be a, a cause of great concern to us. That would be an abnormal thing. And we ought to look at a Christian in the same way. If we have a Christian who doesn't grow up, if he doesn't increase in his faith and get to this next stage of being the young man, then we ought to consider that Christian to be anomaly. So we grow up, we move up, And John speaks of this stage in verses 13 and 14. He says, I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. And then in verse 14, I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, we noticed in our last message about the young men, and this is as as far as we got that last time, is that young men are those that fight for the faith. Young men fight for for the faith. Now we notice here that John says that they have overcome the wicked one. And what we have there is a language of struggle. It's a language of warfare. Now it's amazing the numbers of times that you, that you read in the Bible where the Christian life is, is compared to a battle. We are constantly fighting against those enemies that war against our soul. Now when a Christian is in the baby stage, he's not yet equipped to fight those battles. A Christian who's in infancy uh, is in danger of falling prey to false doctrine, of being blown around by the winds of doctrine, the various winds of doctrine. And this is where a Christian life can become shipwrecked. And unfortunately, there are many Christian people that they, they, they get saved, but they get under the wrong type of teaching. They get under some false doctrine, and they end up staying babies. They, they spend their whole lives, and they never grow up. And that's really the bane of Christianity today because there are so many churches with pastors that that don't feed their flock properly. As someone had said, uh, their ministries are five miles wide and an inch deep. In other words, they cover a lot of ground, but they don't really ground anybody. Paul wrote to Timothy with this encouragement in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, with some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. There you see that fighting metaphor again. War a good warfare. So he's telling him, get good doctrine under your belt, commit to that, stay with that, draw on that. And if you do, you'll be able to hold off your spiritual enemies. I know you're quite familiar with what Paul has to say about spiritual warfare, especially in Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to turn over there for just a moment, and we're going to look at a a little bit here, some scriptures here. And in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks of the wiles of the devil. And the wiles are those various methods of attack that... Uh, Satan uses. He comes at us from all different directions. So Paul says that the Christian needs the whole armor of God. Sometimes we sing that song, Soldiers of Christ Arise, and there's a line in that song that says, and take to arm you for the fight, the panoply of God. Panoply comes from the Greek word panoplia, and it's here in this passage of Scripture in both, uh, both verses 11 and 13, and panoplia means full armor. 
So what does he say about the full armor? Well, in verse number 13, Ephesians 6, he says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in that list, you'll find the heavy armor that an immature Christian is not yet quite able to bear. Now, just like uh, David as a young boy, when he went to fight against Goliath, uh, Saul wanted to lend him his armor, and that armor was too heavy for him. He, he had, as David said, I haven't proved this. And David said, I, I'm, I'm not able to, to support an armor like this. And so David couldn't wear it. Well, that's like a, a, a newborn Christian. He's not ready to, to put on the whole armor of God just yet and know how to use that skillfully. But that's the place that you want to come to in your Christian life. You want to take the things that are in this list, and you want to grow in these things, and you do want to learn how can you use those skillfully to defend yourself against all the attacks of the devil. That takes time. And that's why we're talking about spiritual growth. Growth takes time. I was somewhat amused by a story that my sister told me a couple of years ago. There was a a young man in their church. I, I believe at the time he was about 17 years old. And he had aspirations that he wanted to become a preacher. And so he attended church, and I suppose he had some, he had some Bible knowledge. He'd been to church most of his life. But he, he came to the place where he thought that he was ready to preach and that he was skillful. So this man, young man uh, didn't like something that the pastor of the church said, and maybe he didn't like the pastor's methodology. I don't know exactly what it was. But he decided that he was going to challenge the pastor. Now, this man had been pastor that, it has been pastor of that church now, I guess, I think about that, 50, 54 years. This man has been pastor of that church. And here comes a 17-year-old boy is going to challenge a man who's been in the pulpit for 54 years. Now, what do you think a 17-year-old boy has to say to a pastor who's been pastor that long? Well, not much of any value, I can tell you that right now. But that's really no different than taking somebody in the church that might be 30 years old, 35 years old, and, and they've been a Christian three or four years or two or three years, and they come to the pastor and they tell him, well, here's what you ought to be preaching about. You need to change what you're doing there and preach something else because here's what we need. We don't need that. Well, folks, you don't want to do that. You've got to take some time to grow up. You don't come in here and, and bring your knife to a gunfight, folks. Uh, you, you want to come here, and if you're going to talk about things like this, you've got to be skillful in it. You've got to have some seasoning in it, so you don't challenge a pastor on things like that. There is a time that you sit and you listen and you learn, and you take what you hear and you apply it and re- remember where your place is. Now, let's turn, to, if you would, just a moment here to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Um, I made myself a note when we talked about this the last time, and, and I said I want to come back here and I want to talk about Timothy just a little bit more. Uh, Paul had been traveling around the Roman Empire, and uh, Paul spent a lot of time in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard. And I suppose that during that time, he had a, he had a whole lot of opportunity to develop all of these metaphors that he has about warfare. So he's always talking to Timothy in the vein of, of being a soldier. And so, uh, Timothy's this young man who's in his prime, he has energy, and Paul wanted to make sure that he channeled that energy into the right direction. 
Well, that brings me to this thought in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. Uh, let's, read just, let's read verse 3 and then verse 4. Uh, Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, why don't you notice this particularly? No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Well, this is where many young men, many growing Christians start to go off track. Now, each of us has to live. All of us have to eat. We have to have shelter. We have to have clothes. And the Bible teaches that a good Christian it will be someone who takes care of his family. And the Bible says that a person that, that won't work and take care of his family is worse than an infidel. But on the other side of this, we have this statement by Paul where he says that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. This is what we are saved to do, folks. We are saved to do the work of God. And so we can't be consumed with the affairs of this life so that those things actually become the purpose of our existence. Christ is the purpose of our existence. We've been brought into his new kingdom. We have this new life. We've been born again. Our past life is no longer our greatest concern. Life in the kingdom is about Christ. And all the other stuff that goes on, all of that is secondary. And if you want to look at it the way the Bible looks at it, our jobs, what we do here, that's just to support us while we do God's work. That, that's where our energy and our direction is supposed to be. So we don't want to get that turned around and begin to focus on supporting ourselves for life that we have in the world. See, there's a huge imbalance when you weigh discipleship that says, take no thought for what you eat or drink or what you put on. When you weigh that against a discipleship that says, that's all I'm going to think about is what I eat and what I, what I wear, what I put on, where I live, the car I drive, and all of those things, that has it all completely turned around. Those things are what the Bible calls the entanglements of the world. And Paul says that a good soldier cannot concern himself with those things. Well, who's going to take charge of this? I mean, who, who are we talking about here in, in the vein of what John has to say that could demonstrate this kind of life properly? Well, it would be those that are the vibrant young men. They're, they're at the stage when they can be great testimonies as a sacrifice for God. Now, I know that it's tempting. Uh, you can see people that are enjoying where they live, what they're doing, at the expense of a good church, at the expense of having good teaching, at the expense of having solid grounding in the Word of God, at the expense of bearing fruits for the kingdom of God. And you don't want to be drawn away by those things. The trade-offs on those things are temporal. That's going to pass away. It's not characteristic of kingdom living. Now, we go back to 1 John and what he says about young men. John also says in the 14th verse, The word of God abideth in you. Now, that's the second aspect that he gives of assurance and the sanctification of young men. Number two is they walk in the word. The Word of God abides in them. It's the Word that provides the path for daily living. Now, John's statement here is tantamount to a doctrinal test that we're going to explore a little bit later on in the study. But this is the truth of the Word of God. This is when God's Word gets settled down into your soul and it anchors you solidly. It's when you come to the place where the, where the subtleties of false teachers and the things that they say, the doctrines that they teach, the very doctrines that deceive other people have no effect on you at all. Now, I remember... 
uh, going to visit a lighthouse once uh, that was equipped with a light and a foghorn. I don't know, it might have been one of the lighthouses around here, I don't remember. But there was a, a sign up there by the foghorn that said that you don't want to be too close to this if that foghorn goes off. And the reason that you don't, because that thing will explode your eardrums if you're standing there. Folks, this is what, it, what I'm talking about. When, when you have been grounded in the Word of God, when you hear false doctrine, it's just like it explodes upon you. You recognize it right away, and the thing that you think about is you want to jump on that thing and you want to beat it to death. You know, sometimes in our exuberance of, of fighting against false doctrine, it, get, it gets just a little bit overwhelming. I think I told you the story about uh, this sweet little JW that knocked on my door one day. And uh, normally, I, I just don't have time to fool with those people. I don't pay any attention to them, and I don't, don't bother with them. But I decided on this day that I was going to mess with this one just a little bit. And um, when she came in, we, we were talking, and, and I wasn't easy on her. And when she left my house, she went away crying. She was in tears. And she's walking down the sidewalk. I said, take that to the kingdom hall. No, I didn't say that. But, but th- that's the way it is when, when you... When you hear this false doctrine, and it explodes in your head. It doesn't affect you. You're grounded in the Word of God. You're not going to be taken in by any of that. You know, it's the place that you come to when, when, a, when a Mormon comes docking, knocking on your door. And you might as well see that person appearing to you in a red suit with a pitchfork and a devil's pointed tail. Because you recognize that. You hear that false doctrine, and it's not going to stick with you. You're not going to go with that. It's not going to shake your foundation because you know the truth of God's Word. Now, in the original language here, uh, what, what John is saying here is not that you are still waiting on your victory. No, the original language actually means that you have already overcome the devil. You're not waiting on victory. You've already conquered him. And that's what happens when you get grounded in the Word. It's when you are stable and there's nothing that comes along that can shake your faith. And the whole point that he's trying to get across to us here is assurance. This is the stage of assurance that gives you every incentive, every desire to study God's Word so that you will want to grow. And you want this in your life. You want this sanctification. You desire it. You pray for it. Because there's nothing like being totally settled in your faith. So John deals with this stage. He wants every believer to have assurance, and he's just listing the reasons why you should have it. And so he's not comparing them to the Gnostics that don't believe. But this is not the stage where he wants them to stop. He still has another level of sanctification. And here we get even greater assurance. And this is the third level. This is the matured. This, these are the fathers. And I think that this is the stage that represents the pinnacle. Now, in the beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14, he mentions the fathers. And interestingly, he says the same about in both verses. He says, I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. Verse 14, I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. And the only change there is I write and I have written. Let me give you two statements about this stage of spiritual growth. First one is the most obvious. Everybody should recognize this. They are more deeply developed. That's why they're called fathers. They are the deeply developed. Uh, In each stage of development, uh, you're moving up. And here you have the fathers who are seasoned and wise. They're wiser than the young men. And certainly they're way beyond those very elementary doctrines of the faith that the immature believers know about. And this is the area where uh, I wouldn't want to be too presumptuous and say that I've reached it. 
Now, I'm sure that John has somebody in mind because he writes to them, but I almost think that, that you might not be at this stage if you're not humble to admit that you might not be at this stage. I mean, do you see what I'm saying here? I mean, th- this, is, this is where you see this in someone else, but you may not be too quite sure about yourself. I mean, you're not going to assert yourself and say, well, I know I'm on this level. You know, I don't have any hesitation in saying that I think that my dad was there, and there are some men that I don't want to do anything but just listen to them. I want to sit at their feet. I want to hear what they have to say because they've been at this thing a long time. They have been through multiple spiritual battles. They've honed their skills. They've scraped the devil off their boots many different times. So they're battle seasoned, and they know what they're doing. And there's not a day goes by that I wish I couldn't call up my dad and say, can you teach me something deeper about these doctrines of the Word that I need to know about? But if I'm not at this stage, I want to be there. I want to keep working until I get there. I want to apply what I know until I get there. And I realize all of the time how much that I really don't know about the Word. You know, when you catch me in my office and I have a half dozen books in front of me and I'm trying to get another sermon out, well, then, then you know that I haven't got there yet. Um, I've still got some things to learn. And uh, I, I'm working on that. I want to get there. And sometimes I think, you, you haven't got there, Smith, because these things ought to come to you a lot easier than they do. But I want to get there. I want to be more deeply developed. Most of you know that I have a fascination with the Puritans. And one of the things that just, just totally amazes me, I'm completely wowed at this, that the Puritans, without the aids that we have today for study, were so deeply developed and so deep in the doctrines of God's Word. I mean, they had an uncommon wisdom and insight into Scripture that people today just don't seem to have. Some of you that have read them, you know what I'm talking about. I think Leno and, and uh, Gary Albright are reading uh, John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And folks, that is a very, very difficult book. Ask them how many times that you have to reread almost every sentence to try to get the idea where, where he's going when John Owen wrote that book. I mean, it's a very difficult book. And so these guys were like grand chess masters. They're, they're 300 moves ahead of you. So you, you've got to get into their minds. You've got to try to decipher what they're thinking about. Well, that scholarship is just not seen today. We don't find it in the modern pulpit. Instead, uh, I think what we've got is nursery school children compared to those fellows. Now, a few months ago, there was a, a pastor who gave me a book that was written by another pastor that all of us know. And I, and I guess that he didn't want it, so he gave it to me. And uh, it's, a, it's a commentary on Acts. Now, ke- now keep in mind that uh, we went through Acts about three or four years ago. And while we were going through that series, part of the reading that I was doing for that was, was Puritans. And, and, and one person I was reading after quite a bit was uh, J.A. Alexander, who is one of the uh, Princeton greats from the 19th century. And those are the kinds of things that I was studying. So he handed me this book, and I picked it up, and I read about three pages into it and said, well, okay, put it on the shelf. I probably won't look at that thing again. You see, we don't have too many fathers, I don't think. Uh, some, some people think that they're fathers, and you've got some followers who think that they're following fathers, but they don't know very much either. So if you, if you know a little bit, they can impress you a whole lot. Go read some Puritans. Go read some of what they have to say, and then, then you'll find out what fathers are all about. And you'll also find out why that uh, they're not 
doctrinally like too many Baptists today. So that's the first and the most obvious thing. To be a spiritual father, you have to be more deeply developed. But this next one is what I think is really the intent of the passage, what John is driving at. Number two is they are experienced in the eternal God. He says, you have known him that is from the beginning. John Stott has a great comment here. He says, they are already consciously living in eternity. You know, the more I thought about that, the more profound that statement became. They are already consciously living in eternity. I know about eternity. I mean, I, I, I preach about eternity all the time. But no matter how long I do it and how often I do it, most of us think that eternity is the next stage for a Christian. Eternity is the place that we're waiting to get to when we leave this life. Do you realize how different that your life would be, what a difference it would make in you if you were consciously right now living in eternity? You know what that means? That means that the activities of your life would be not much different than if you were sitting face-to-face with Jesus. You would be so aware of him, and you would be so absorbed with him, you would be so close to him that sin could never enter into your mind. So you can't think about sin and think about God at the same time. If you are consciously living in eternity, your, your mind is completely filled with the things of God. So we wouldn't be talking here about entangling ourselves with the affairs of this life because eternity takes no account for the affairs of this life. It doesn't really matter to eternity. And could that be what Jesus meant when he said, take no thought for food or raiment? Is that what he meant? You see, when you have him... What is it that you have? You have eternal life that's abiding in you. You are living in eternity. Now, if you just glance over there to the third chapter in verse number 13, here John says, Marvel not, my brethren, that the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now that last phrase of verse 15, no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Well, the implication of that verse would be that a person who loves as he should, which could only be a Christian, has eternal life abiding in him. Now the problem is that I don't think we're really consciously aware of that. Are we truly consciously aware that we have eternal life abiding in us? And folks, as long as we have this attitude that most of us have, that eternal life is somewhere off in the future, somewhere distant from us, as long as we're thinking like that, then we've got an excuse for ourselves to say, well, I live this way because I have to live this way. I sin because I have to sin. I have problems because I'm supposed to have problems. No, if you're consciously living in eternity, you can't make those kinds of excuses. And so, I believe that John says these fathers are matured believers in another way as well because they have experienced the immutability of God. They see that God does not change, that God is always faithful. You know, we sing about that and we talk about that. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Thy, uh, thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. We sing about that all the time. But who's the first to get worried and all upset about the economy? And who's the first to break down and, and fret about things when things don't go our way? 
Every time that a problem comes our way, we are usually the first people who forget all about the faithfulness of God. God is always faithful. God's never let us down. When did he ever let us down? God has never relinquished control. You know, I I am so thankful that God has revealed to us the doctrines of grace. And when you understand God's sovereignty, you are much more likely to escape your worries and your fears because at that point, you know for sure that there is nothing, nothing that depends upon you. Everything totally depends upon God. And I'll tell you quite frankly, I I don't think that there's ever been a real father in the faith who, who wasn't dedicated to the doctrines of grace. You see, these are people that have matured, they've experienced the eternality, the immutability, the faithfulness of God, and they rest in that. And so they're conscious of living in eternity because our God is an eternal God. And so here we have these stages of growth. Every level has built-in assurance, no matter where you are in your faith, no matter what stage you are, whether you've just got saved, whether you've been saved 10 years, 20, 50 years, doesn't matter where you are. God has put things into his word and things that can come in, go into your heart that will give you assurance that you are truly in the faith. That's what John wants them to know. That's why he stops the arguments. I mean, here he had this relentless pursuit of error, and he stops here to confirm true believers. He doesn't want them to have doubts. These are the chosen, they're the called, the justified, the sanctified, and God has confirmed them in the faith. Now they need to realize that, and they need to go on. And so from children to young men to fathers, Christians should always be advancing. A growing believer will always be an assured believer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time we're able to look into your word tonight and what profound things that we find in this little epistle of 1 John. It's worth us taking our time to discover these things, to dig them out. Lord, we know that you have something for us, and we just uh, thank you for your blessed word and the assurance that it gives us of our faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for all of our people here. Uh, we thank you for those who, who come out on Wednesday nights. Uh, we know these folks love you and they have dedicated themselves to you. So we just thank you, Lord, for each and every one of them. Uh, bless their families. Strengthen us in your word. Uh, help us to stand behind our church and, and, Lord, to be supporters of the work that we do here. We just thank you so much, Lord, for the people that you've given us. Bless as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.